Welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, the show where we talk about those historical figures you've probably heard of, but probably don't know too much about. I'm your host, Connor Bolanos, and today we're going to be talking about one of Russia's most infamous czars, Tsar Ivan IV also known as Ivan the Terrible. But before we begin this week's episode, it's important to note that this is building off our last week's episode where we talked about Vasily III and also Ivan III. So if you haven't listened to that one already, I advise that you go do so so you have a bit of background going into this one. So getting into the early life of Ivan, Ivan was the first son of the Tsar Vasily III and his second wife, Elena Galinskaya. When Ivan was three years old, his father Vasily III died from an absence and inflammation on his leg that would eventually develop into blood poisoning. Ivan was then proclaimed the Grand Prince of Moscow at the request of his father, and his mother Elena Grinskaya would initially act as regent for the young Ivan. However, she would die of what many believed to be an assassination by poison in 1538, when Ivan was only eight years old, leaving him at the mercy of a boyar regency which alternated between several feuding boyar families fighting for control. And according to multiple sources, this, these were not good times for Ivan, as, and there were many periods where he lacked many basic necessities. On the 16th of January, 1547, at the age of 16, the regency would end, and Ivan would be crowned with Monomach's cap at the Cathedral of the Dormitian. He would be the first Tsar of Russia to be crowned as the Tsar of all of, of all the Russias, imitating in part what his grandfather, Ivan III, also known as Ivan the Great, who had the title of Grand Prince of Orovrus, but and prior to that, rulers of Muscovy were crowned as grand princes. Although, as I mentioned in our last episode, Ivan III started to style himself as czar in correspondences. And two weeks after his coronation, Ivan married his first wife, Anastasia Romanova, a member of the Romanov family who would become the first Russian czarista. By being crowned the Tsar of Russia, Ivan was sending a message to the world and to Russia itself that he was now the only supreme ruler of his country and that his will was not to be questioned in any way, shape, or form by anyone. As this new title symbolized an assumption of powers equivalent and parallel to those held by the former Byzantine emperors and the Tartar Khans, both known in Russian sources as Tsar, and the political effect of this was to elevate Ivan's position to that being higher than any possible position within all of Russia. And the new title not only secured the throne, but it also granted Ivan a new dimension of power, one that was intimately tied to religion, as he was now considered a divine leader appointed to enact God's will, as many Orthodox church texts described Old Testament kings as czars and Christ as the heavenly czar. The newly appointed title was then passed on from generation to generation, and succeeding Muscovite rulers benefited from the divine nature of the power of the Russian monarch that was crystallized during Ivan's reign. Now, moving into the reign of uh, Ivan the Terrible, we're going to break it down into both domestic policy and foreign policy. So we can focus on each aspect of his reign without having to flip back and forth between and analyzing both different sides. So we're going to start with domestic policy. And at the onset of his reign occurred the Great Calamities triggered by the Great Fire of 1547, also known as the Great Fire of Moscow, which destroyed sections of Moscow that had been built almost entirely of wood. And as if you've ever heard of any other Great Fires in history, such as the Great Chicago Fire, usually this is a recipe for disaster. Disaster, and the fire swept into the Kremlin and even blew up the powder stores in several of the Kremlin's towers. The fire as a whole displaced about 80,000 people and killed between 2,700 and 3,700, leading to widespread poverty among the survivors and devastating economic effects, considering that Moscow was one of the main economic centers and also the capital of the, of the Russian state at the time. The early part of Ivan's reigns, however, despite this trouble, was one of peaceful reforms and modernization, something that was really not so terrible. Ivan revised the law code, creating the Sudabinik of 1550, founded a standing army also known as the Streltsy, established the Zemsky Sobar, the first Russian parliament of the feudal estates type, 
and the Council of Nobles, which was also known as the Chosen Council. He also confirmed the position of the church with the Council of a Hundred Chapters, which unified the rituals and e ecclesiastical regulations of the entire country. And he introduced local self-government to rural regions that were mainly in the northeast of Russia, which were largely dominated by state peasantry. By Ivan's order in 1553, he also expanded printing within the state by establishing the Moscow Print Yard, where the first printing press was introduced to Russia. Here, several religious books were printed during the 1550s and 1560s, helping to spread the rituals and ecclesiastical regulations which had been previously established in the Council of the Hundred Chapters. But the new technology provoked discontent amongst traditional scribes, leading to the print yard being burned down in an arson attack, and the first Russian printers Ivan Fedorov and Pyotr Mitslavets being forced to flee from Moscow to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. However, nonetheless, the printing of books resumed from 1568 onwards. Ivan was also responsible for the construction of St. Basil's Cathedral in Moscow to commemorate the seizure of Kazan. There is a false legend including to this that he was so impressed with the structure that he had the architect blinded so he could never design anything that's beautiful ever again. However, this has likely been disproven as, he went on, as the architect actually went on to develop some walls, something he probably wouldn't have been able to do if he couldn't actually see at all. Other events of this early domestic policy... Um, include the introduction of the first laws restricting the mobility of the peasants, something which would lay the groundwork for serfdom, which, serfdom, which would be instituted under the future Tsar Boris Godunov in, in the year 1597. The 1560s, however, brought to Russia the first hardship since the Great Fire that led to a dramatic change of Ivan's policies. Russia was devastated by a combination of drought and famine, unsuccessful wars against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which we're going to get to in a second, Tartar invasions, and the sea trading blockade carried out by the Swedes, Poles, and the Hanseatic League. His first wife, Antasia Romanova, also died in 1560, and her death was suspected to be of poisoning. This personal tragedy deeply hurt Ivan, and is thought to have affected his personality, if not his mental health. At the same time, one of Ivan's advisors, Prince Andrei Kurbsky, defected to Lithuania, taking command of the Lithuanian troops and devastating the Russian region of Velikia Luki. This series of treasons also made Ivan paranoically suspicious of the nobility, leading to future crackdowns on them as a whole. On the 3rd of December in 1564, Ivan departed Moscow for Alexandra Soldoboda, and from there sending two letters in which he announced his abdication because of alleged embezzlement and treason of the aristocracy and clergy. The Boyar court was unable to rule in Ivan's absence and feared the wrath of the Muscovite citizenry. A Boyar envy departed for Alexandra Soldoboda to return to beg Ivan to return to the throne. Ivan agreed to return on the condition of being granted absolute power, and he demanded that he should be able to execute and confiscate the estates of traitors without interference from the Boyar Council or Church. Upon this, Ivan decreed the creation of the Nina to achieve his efforts. And this is really a probably seen as the first step in the consolidation of the absolute monarchy and the autocracy of the Russian state in the hands of Ivan the Terrible. Dropachinina consisted of all consisted of separate territory within the borders of Russia, mostly in the territory of the former Novgorod Republic in the north, where most of the traitors were and the more rebellious provinces. The Boyar Council ruled the land, the second division of the state, while Ivan held exclusive power over the Oprichinina territory. Ivan also recruited a personal guard known as the Oprichiniki to take control and govern over these lands, and they were only answerable to Ivan himself, not the boyars, ensuring he had absolute control over the region. And the Oprichiniki enjoyed social and economic privileges within the system, and they owed their allegiance to Ivan, as I mentioned, not hereditary local bonds. The first waves of persecutions in the Oprichnina targeted primarily the princely clans of Russia, notably the influential families of Suzdal. Ivan executed, exiled, or forcibly tonsured prominent members of the Boyar clans, or 
on questionable accusations of conspiracy. Among those executed were the Metropolitan Philip and the prominent warlord Alexander Gorbaty Shuriski. And in 1566, Ivan extended the Nina to eight central districts. Of the 12,000 nobles there, 570 would become Ochniks and the rest were expelled. Under this new political system, Joprichniki were given large estates, but unlike the previous landlords, could not be held accountable accountable for their actions. These men vir took virtually all the peasants possessed, forcing them to pay in one year as much as they used to pay in ten. This degree of oppression resulted in increasing cases of peasants fleeing, which in turn led to a drop in the overall production of these states. The price of grain as a result of this increased by a factor of ten within the Russian state. Conditions under the Oprichnina were also worsened by the 157 epidemic, a plague that ended up killing 10,000 people in Novgorod and 600 to 1,000 people daily in Moscow. And during the grim conditions of this epidemic and a famine along with the ongoing Lithuanian War, Ivan grew suspicious that the noblemen of the wealthy city of Novgorod were planning to defect, placing the city itself into the control of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. A Novgorod citizen, Peter Volnitz warned the Tsar about the alleged conspiracy, though many historians believe this report was false, and in 1570, Ivan ordered the Opschichniki to raid the city, where they burned and pillaged Novgorod and the surrounding villages, and the city was never to regain its former prominence. Casualty figures for this vary greatly from different sources, with some numbering victims at around 60,000, and other with the massacre lasting for five weeks. The massacre of Novgorod consisted of men, women, and children that were tied to slaves, then run into the freezing waters of the Volkov River, which Ivan ordered to be ordered on the basis of unproved ac accusations of treason. He would then torture its inhabitants and kill thousands in Pogrom. The archbishop was also hunted to death in the city. Almost every day, roughly 500 to 600 people were killed or drowned. Yet the official death toll named only 1,500 of Novgorod's nobility and mentioned only about the same number of smaller people, a.k.a. peasants and other merchant class within the city. The Opschichnina did not survive long at the sack of Novgorod. During the years 1571 to 1572, the Russian-Crimean Russia War, the Opschichniks failed to prove themselves worthy against regular armies, resulting in Ivan abolishing it in 1572. In 1575, Ivan once again pretended to resign from his title of Tsar and became Simon Beklutalovich, his statesman of Tartar origin, the new Tsar. Simon reigned as a figurehead leader for a year, but was still under the control of Ivan, as said by the English envoy Giles Fletcher, the elder, who, under Ivan's instructions, said that Simon confiscated all of the lands that belonged to the monasteries, while Ivan pretended to disagree with the decision. And when the throne was returned to Ivan in 1576, while he returned some of the confiscated lands, he kept a majority of them. Welcome back for all of you just joining us to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where today we're talking about Ivan the Terrible. We've now just finished talking about Ivan's domestic policy, and we're going to now move into his foreign policy. So Ivan's foreign policy, let's start with domestic and trade. In 1547, Ivan recruited Hans Schlitt, who to go and recruit craftsmen from Germany for work in Russia. However, all of these craftsmen would be arrested in Lübeck at the request of Poland and Livonia, as, these were, as he was at war with these two nations at the time. And German merchant companies ignored the new port built by Ivan on the river Narva in the years 15, in, in 1550 and continued to deliver goods in the Baltic ports owned by Livonia, forcing Russia to remain isolated from sea trade, which only worsened the economic disaster that was going on in with, within Russia at the time from various epidemics, the sack of Novgorod, and also the Great Fire of Moscow, which had caused mass starvation and economic crisis during the early part of Ivan's reign. 
Ivan would establish close ties with the Kingdom of England as well during his early reign, and Russo-English relations can be traced back mainly to 1551, when the Muscovy Company was formed by Richard, by Richard Chancellor, Sebastian Cabot, Sir Hugh Willoughby, and several London merchants. In 1553, Richard Chancellor sailed to the White Sea and continued overland to Moscow, where he visited Ivan's courts. Ivan opened up the White Sea and the port of Arch Archangelus to the company, and granted the Muscovy Company privilege of trading throughout his reign without paying the standard custom fees, resulting in the Muscovy Company becoming essentially a monopoly in the Russo-English trade up until 1698. With the use of English merchants, Ivan engaged in a long correspondence with then Queen Elizabeth I of England, and while the Queen mainly focused on commerce in these communications, Ivan was more interested in the military alliance between the two nations, and the Tsar even asked her for a guarantee to be granted asylum in England should his rule ever be jeopardized, which Elizabeth agreed to on the condition that he provided for himself during his stay. However, this would never be necessary, nor would the military alliance between the two states ever come to fruition. Ivan's next endeavor in his first war would be with the, against the Kazan Khanate, whose armies, since the time he was a child, would raid the northeast of Russia. In the 1530s, the Crimean Khan had formed an offensive alliance with Safiya Garay of Kazan, one of his relatives. When Safiya Garay invaded Muscovy in the December of 1540, the Russians used Kasim charters to contain him, and after his advance was stalled near Morom, Safa Garay was forced to withdraw to his own borders. These reverses undermined Garay's authority in Kazan, and a pro-Russian party represented by Shah Ghali gained enough popular support to make several attempts to overtake the Kazan throne, which Ivan supported in 1554 with a mounted expedition expedition to the river Volga in show of support for the pro-Russian factions. In 1551, the Tsar sent his envoy to the Nogai Horde, and they promised to maintain neutrality during the impending war, and the Arbegs and Udumurts submitted to the Russian authority as well, upon them sending envoys. And in 1551, the wooden fort of Sivyaska was transported down the Volga from Uglik all the way to Kazan, where it was used as the Russian place to arms during the decisive campaign against Kazan in 1552. On the 16th of June, 1552, Ivan led a strong Russian army towards Kazan. The last siege of the Tartar capital would then commence on the 30th of August, under the supervision of Prince Alexander Gorbaty Shuitsky. The Russians used battering rams, a siege tower, undermining 150 cannons to penetrate the capital. And the Russians also had the advantage of efficient military engineers. The city's water supply was blocked and the walls were breached, upon which Kazan would fall finally on the 2nd of October of that year, where its fortifications were raged and much of the population, population was massacred. Many Russian prisoners and slaves, however, were released as a result, as they had been accumulated over the years through various Tartar raids. And this was the first victory of Ivan over the Kazan Khanates, the Khanates who controlled much of eastern Russia, south and southeastern Russia. Ivan would follow up his successes against the Khanates in two campaigns in 1554 and 1556, in which Russian troops conquered the Astrakhan Khanate at the base of the Volga River, and the new Astrakhan fortress in, would be built in 1558 by Ivan instead of the old Tartar capital to consolidate the new gains. The annexation of the Tartar Khanates meant the conquest of vast ter territories, the access to large markets, and control of the entire length of the Volga River. In addition, the subjugation of Muslim Khanates actually turned Muscovy essentially into an empire. Welcome back to all of you just joining us. The history shouldn't be a mystery. Where today we're talking about Ivan the Terrible. We just got done talking about his efforts and wars against the various Khanates of the Russian region. And now we're going to get into his diplomacy with the Ottoman Empire. In 1568, the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire, Sokolo Mehmed Pasa, who was the real power in the administration of the Ottoman Empire under the time of the Sultan Selim, initiated the first encounter between the Ottoman Empire and her future northern rival, Russia. 
The results presaged the many disasters to come between the two nations. A plan to unite the Volga and Don by a canal was detailed in Constantinople, but in the summer of 1569, a large force under Kazim Pasa of 1,500 Janissaries and 2,000 Sopiks, a few thousand Azeps and Oxeniks, were sent to lay siege to Ostrakhan and begin the canal works, while an Ottoman fleet besieged Azov. Early in the 1570s, Ivan's ambassadors had concluded a treaty at Constantinople that restored friendly relations between the Sultan and the Tsar, though, following these previous, um, previous attacks against the Russian state. In 1558, Ivan launched the Livonian War in an attempt to gain access to the Baltic Sea and its major trade routes, something which I mentioned earlier he had failed to do and something that isolated Russia. The war ultimately proved unsuccessful, however, stretching on for 24 years and engaging the Kingdom of Sweden, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and the Teutonic Knights of Livonia. The Prawn War had nearly destroyed the Russian economy, while the Obstrechnina had thoroughly disrupted the government. Meanwhile, the Union of Lublin had united the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the Kingdom of Poland, and the Commonwealth acquired an energetic leader, Stefan Batori was supported by Russia's southern enemy, the Ottoman Empire, who, despite them making up an agreement, they were still rivals to each other. Ivan's realm was being squeezed as a result of this by two of the greatest European powers at this time. After rejected peace proposals from his enemies, Ivan IV found himself in a difficult position by 1579. With displaced refugees fleeing the war compounded the effects of simultaneous drought and exacerbated war-endangered epidemics, causing much loss of life across the empire. Batory had then launched a series of offensive against Muscovy in the campaign seasons of 1579 to 1581, trying to cut off the Kingdom of Livonia from Muscovy territories. During his first offensive in 1579, he retook Polotsk with a force of 22,000 men. During the second campaign in 1580, he took Veliki Luki with a 29,000 strong force, and finally he sieged Pskov in 1581 with a 100,000 strong army, and then, Nova and then Narva in Estonia was reconquered by the Swedish in 1581, spelling disaster for the Russians, who so far were losing on almost every front. This war with these various enemies, however, would cause problems in southern Russia, where in the later years of Ivan's reign, the southern borders of Moscovy were being disturbed by Crimean Tartars, whose main purpose was solely to capture slaves. The Khan Gerai of Crimea repeatedly raided the Moscow region, and in 1571, a 40,000-strong Crimean and Turkish army launched a large-scale raid across the Russian border. But due to the ongoing Livonian War, Moscow's garrison was as small as 6,000 and could not delay the Tartar approach. Unresisted, Devlet devastated unprotected towns and villages around Moscow and caused the Great Fire of Moscow in 1571. Historians es estimating the number of casualties from this to be as many from 10,000 to 80,000 people. To buy peace from Devlet Gray, Ivan was forced to relinquish his claims on Astrakhan in favor of the Crimean Khanate, although this proposed transfer was only a diplomatic maneuver and was never actually completed. This defeat angered Ivan, and between 1571 and 1572, preparations were made upon his orders to construct additional fortifications beyond the river Oka. The following year, Devlet would launch another raid on Moscow, now with a numerous horde reinforced by Turkish janissaries equipped with firearms and cannons. The Russian army, led by Prince Mikhail Vortonitsky, was half the size, but yet it was an experienced army, supported by Streltsy equipped with modern firearms, in addition, this time it was not artificially divided into two parts as it was during the defeat of 1571. This division mainly being a division between the um, Zemsky and the Oprichnina, who I mentioned were used as an army unit. On the 27th of July, the horde broke through the defensive line, however, along the river Oka and moved towards Moscow. The Russian troops did not have time to intercept it, but the regiment of, of the prince Kravostodin vigorously attacked the Tartars from the rear. 
and the Khan was stopped only 30 kilometers from Moscow and brought down his entire army back on the Russians, who managed to take up the fence near the village of Molody. After several days of heavy fighting on the 2nd of August, Mikhail Voltonitsky, with the main part of the army, flanked the Tartars and dealt a sudden blow, while Kovorostini made a sortie from the fortifications. The Tartars were completely defeated during the end of Ivan's reign in regards to foreign policy, but also a bit domestic policy. Ivan was responsible for the large-scale exploration and colonization of Siberia, within 1555 after the conquest of Kazan, where he engaged in diplomatically numerous conets to the east to secure their suzerainty to him, and also in 1558 when he gave a merchant family the patent for colonizing the abundant region along the Kama River, and in 1574 the lands over the Ural Mountains along the rivers Tura and Tobol. It was under his reign that the first exploration of Siberia really began, and it also saw the founding of the first city of Tayuman in 1586. However, that was two years after the death of Ivan, but he laid the foundation for the colonization of Siberia, which would take decades to come. Ivan's reign, however, would not last forever, and he would die of a stroke during a game of chess on the 28th of March, 1584. But his succession would result in the country being put into crisis and the future time of troubles, as his second son Ivan was killed by Ivan the Terrible in 1581 after Ivan assaulted his son Ivan's wife after she apparently wore scandalous clothing. And as a result, when his son Ivan came to confront his father, Ivan beat him to death leaving the throne to his third son, Theodore, who was considered incompetent and unfit the rule, whose death would result in the time of troubles. Thus ends the reign of Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, the first Tsar and autocrat of all of Russia. <laughs>